Welcome, WG listeners, to a long read. So for this long read, we head to Truly Adventurous, via Medium, for The Last Train Robbery. It was written by Rima Sayers, and it dropped on June the 2nd, 2022. Now with that said, let's jump right in. Fairbank, Arizona. 15th February 1900. The sun had just set. Darkness surrounded the glow from the gas lights at the railway station in the town of Fairbank, Arizona. Located in Cochise County, the town owed its existence to the railroad. Fairbank was the closest rail stop to the more bustling tombstone, less than 10 miles to the east. While Fairbank did not have many houses, the town boasted a one-room schoolhouse and a fancy hotel for the train passengers. A large building near the train station housed a restaurant and a general store. That night, a New Mexico and Arizona line train was expected from the city of Nogales, 60 miles farther down the line. Gold and coins from Mexico were often shipped north aboard this train. A small crowd milled about on the platform, talking and laughing. People from the town liked to come down to the station, when the trains came in to watch the big steam engine and taste the adventure and romance of the railroad. A few onlookers were drunk, a cowboy lay sprawled up against the station building, apparently asleep. Another cowboy hung onto a support post to keep his balance, giggling and twirling around. A third sat a bench leading up against a post. His hat had a blue feather in the brim. Two other inebriated cowboys, who were brothers, were arguing loudly close to the tracks north of the platform. They were half-heartedly shoving each other and arguing. Sheriff Thomas Broderick of nearby Santa Cruz County happened to be on the platform, waiting for a friend to arrive on the train. He noted the argument off to his right and ignored it, except to smile in amusement. It wasn't his county, so it wasn't his problem. The train whistle was heard in the distance and soon the chugging sound of the engine could be heard. Within minutes, the whistle was loud enough for people to cover their ears. Moments later, the big locomotive was rolling into the light from the station. The two brothers off to the side of the platform stopped arguing and walked together toward the train as the engine pulled up beside them. Unseen by them, inside the train, a man lounged against the door frame of the express car, where valuable cargo was kept, as the train came to a stop. Jeff Milton was the express messenger, the term for a guard who accompanied shipments of money. Milton, 39, worked for Wells Fargo the prominent Western Bank. He was tall, with short, dark hair and a Van Dyke beard, a popular style that was short and sharp. He was wearing a white shirt with a high, stiff collar that was unbuttoned with no tie. His fleece-lined leather jacket hung open, exposing the fact that he had no gun on him. With the door opened, the Wells Fargo messenger was ready to start offloading the mail to the station manager. The other three drunken cowboys on the platform suddenly seemed awake and sober as they regarded the express car guard. Expletives spoken softly shocked the people next to them. The three appeared somewhat hesitant, perhaps reconsidering their secret purpose. But the brothers, close to the train, were quickly aboard the steam engine with guns drawn. One of the cowboys on the platform fired at Milton, shattering the bone at his elbow of his left arm. He fell, leaving his revolver out of reach, but he still had a chance to defend himself. A loaded shotgun was propped against the door. 
a few feet away. The three cowboys still on the platform charged straight at the express car. Despite the excruciating pain on his left arm, Milton scrambled over to the shotgun, cocked it and fired into the belly of the bandit in front. The buckshot spread out from the gun muzzle, multiple pellets hitting the robber. The bandit behind the injured man had turned away at the sight of the shotgun, but one of the pellets hit him in the buttock. Milton pulled himself up with blood running down his arm and pulling on the floor. Sweat poured off his face as he managed to close the car door, but he knew that the door would not hold them off for long. Pulling out the key to the safe, he looked around for a place to hide it. After a moment's hesitation, he threw it against the wall of the railroad car, where it fell behind stacked boxes. Then he slid to the floor and lost consciousness. The bandits, prying the door open again, found Milton in the pool of his blood, apparently dead or dying. While searching frantically for the key, they were joined by their comrades who had tied up the engineer and brakeman. There wasn't much time. People were beginning to yell from the station. After a few minutes of fruitless searching, they saw Sheriff Broderick approaching with several of the men. One of the cowboys grabbed a tin money box and they ran. Two others picked up one of their two wounded companions, whose nickname was Three-Fingered Jack, and threw him on a horse. The five rode off into the dark. They rode on in fear and anger and frustration, never to know that they had made the pages of history. Their attempt at riches was arguably the last train robbery in the Old West, a crime that would lead a series of investigators down unexpected paths to a shocking conclusion. As the new century dawned, along with it came the final gasps of the Wild West and the frontier spirit. Last chances for redemption would be harder to come by in the coming years, and the slim line between hero and outlaw would be reduced to a vanishing point on the horizon. Word of the robbery spread rapidly by rider and by telegraph. In Wilcox, another whistle-stop town approximately 40 miles to the northeast, Cochise County Deputy Sheriff Bert Alvord sat in Schwarzner's saloon, drinking with friends. The son of a respected justice of the peace, Bert was a big man in his mid-thirties, over six feet tall with a light brown moustache and not a hair on his scalp. He always wore a type of bowler hat with a wide brim lying on the bar beside him. Someone bursts in, yelling for the deputy. Bert turned to look at the town's telegraph operator, who was talking so fast no one could understand it. The deputy placed his hands on the man's shoulders and calmed him down enough until the operator got the words out. The train had been robbed in Fairbank. Horses were saddled, saddlebags were packed with water and ammunition. Nearly 30 men were deputised, mostly from among the deputy's friends, to form posses of searchers. In short order, there was little left in the streets of Wilcox except the settling dust and gossiping people. Meanwhile, a telegram was sent to Deputy Billy Stiles, a friend of Bert's, who had been nearly 100 miles away in Nogales. Billy was about 30 years old with short, curly brown hair, a small handlebar moustache, and a gentle, almost cherubic face. He and wife Maria, 30, had a five-year-old and hoped for more children. But Billy was out, and didn't receive the telegram. He had planned that afternoon to meet with Wells Fargo messenger Jeff Milton to look at some mining property near Nogales. Milton was supposed to have the day off, but the assigned Wells Fargo messenger for the day had gotten sick and Milton had to cover his run on the New Mexico and Arizona line train. Milton forgot to contact Billy to cancel their plans. Billy waited for a couple of hours, then gave up and headed back to Wilcox, riding on deer trails and wagon roads, through the desert, round mountains, over dry washes, past Fort Huachuca, and on into Fairbank. 
he didn't see another soul. As he rode into the town, he saw the crowd at the railroad station and found Bert Alvord and his posse already there. Bert told him about the train robbery and about Jeff Milton being shot. But he tried to calm Bert down, but Bert stopped off, swearing to run down the bandits and bring every one of them to justice. Bert had a taste of notoriety a couple years earlier. A cowboy from Mexico was tearing up her saloon, not long after the start of the Spanish-American War. The cowboy reportedly was yelling that he was going to trash the United States, saving Spain the trouble. In his role as deputy, Bert tried to arrest him, but the man swung at him and Bert shot him dead. The town applauded, though for the man holding the gun, a wonder rage of emotions no doubt swelled after killing a complete stranger. Exhilaration, regret, second guessing. A posse of searchers dispatched in the wake of the Fairbank robbery followed orders from deputies to interview witnesses and railroad employees. Then they walked the tracks looking for hoof prints, but most of the prints had been obliterated. But Alvord split his posse up into three groups. Billy Stiles took one group north, another friend of Bert's, an ill-tempered man named William Downing, led another party south. Bert led his group east towards the Dragoons and the Chiricahuas. Mountain ranges that ran parallel to each other on either side of Sulphur Springs Valley. Finding the outlaws went beyond this one crime. The railroad was vital to the developing economy of the West. Transportation of resources, people and manufactured goods by railroad cut both costs and time substantially. Fast transit, especially for passengers, brought the world closer, unifying far-flung villages into a loose local society where nearby towns became we instead of they. Crime against the railroad was a crime against the West. The injured Wells Fargo guard Jeff Milton was known for his dedication to duty and honour. After the Fairbank robbery, as people all across the country prayed for his recovery, he became a symbol of heroism in the West, and this increased the urgency to catch the culprits. The five Fairbank train robbers had vanished even as the story of their crime became a sensation in the county. The bandits, meanwhile, were still getting to know each other. They had never worked together before. Bravo Juan Yoas, with his hair tied back in a ponytail at the nape of his neck, had been in the area for many years, moving back and forth from Mexico to Cochise County. Two of the other perpetrators, brothers George and Louis Owens, had arrived from Texas a few months before. They were squatters, having taken over a deserted cabin near Pierce, Arizona. Three-fingered Jack Dunlop, 28, had packed a lot of rough living into those years. Most recently, he had been extradited from Colorado to Arizona on a warrant for horse theft. However, when he arrived in Cochise County, the plaintiff could not be found and he was released. The final thief, Bob Brown, had just arrived from Texas weeks before. All these men were probably in their late 20s or early 30s, by this point scruffy with weak old beards. The five of them rode eastward towards the Dragoon Mountains. They were depressed and angry. George Owens had opened the money box from the train only to find it contained a grand total of $42, a value equal to approximately $1,400 today. Not enough to have put their lives and their freedom at risk. Furious it was not more, he had thrown to the ground. His brother Louis sighed and dismounted, picking up the money. He gave each robber $10, except Jack, who was terribly wounded, barely hanging onto the neck of his horse. They could see that Jack wasn't going to make it much farther, and money would be wasted on him. The last two dollars went into Louis's own pocket. Bravo Juan decided to head south to Mexico. 
He had continued to whine about his wound, so the others were happy to see him go. The Owens brothers wanted to go home to their cabin outside Pierce on the other side of the Dragoons. Bob Brown was left riding with the critically wounded three-fingered Jack, who had been shot on the train in the abdomen by Milton. As they rode, every step Jack's horse took jarred his abdomen and the injured man groaned. Several miles later, Bob Brown and Jack were following a trail along the San Pedro River. Jack was slumped over his horse's neck, whimpering softly. Finally, he slid off the horse into a heap on the ground, crying out as he landed. Brown got off his own horse and looked at the dying man. He knelt beside him. Brown knew there was nothing he could do for Jack. Got a bottle of whiskey out of his saddlebags and gave it to the wounded man to help with the pain. He may have patted Jack on the shoulder before he climbed on his horse and rode away. The fugitives had been fortunate to have a head start while the county sheriff Scott White was away on business. Now they had to evade two perpetual underdogs who had never quite achieved as much as what they could dream, deputies Bert Alvord and Billy Stiles. On the other hand, those unfulfilled dreams could well intensify the stakes and motivations for Bert and Billy to hunt them down. They had the chance to live up to the high standards exemplified by Sheriff White, Bert's highly accomplished father, and the injured guard Jeff Milton. They also had a rare opportunity to redeem themselves after coming up short in a similar situation. That early incident had occurred on September 11th, 1899, a year prior to the Fairbank robbery. A Southern Pacific train was due at about 9pm at Cochise Station, 10 miles southwest of Wilcox and about 45 miles northeast of Fairbank. Kochi Station was just a dot on the map. They stopped for the trains to drop off and pick up mail and the occasional passenger. Sometimes an ore car was added or cattle were driven onto a stock car. As at Fairbank, there was always a small crowd at Cochise when the train came in, a chance for entertainment and camaraderie in a tiny town out in the desert. People stood around and chatted with their neighbours and waited for the shrill whistle that would announce the arrival of the train. And out in the desert a few miles from town, two bandits waited for the train. When the train came from the east, it had to climb a steep grade that would slow it down. The bandits knew this. They also knew that the train was supposed to be carrying the payroll for the miners who worked relatively nearby at Pierce. As the locomotive struggled up the hill towards Cochise, The engineer looked out and saw a red lantern swinging on the track ahead. Obeying the universal signal of danger ahead, the engineer slowed the train to a halt. Moments later, he and the brakeman were looking down the barrels of two guns. The bandits were masked and did not say much. They walked the engineer and brakeman back to the express car. One of the bandits shouted, open up the door. The Wells Fargo messenger, or guard, a colleague of Jeff Milton, yelled back, go to hell. The bandit pulled several sticks of dynamite out of the saddlebag he was carrying, letting the engineer see them. If you don't open the door, I'm going to blow up the whole car. I've got dynamite. The engineer shouted to the guard, he's got the dynamite, you better open up. There was silence for a minute, then the express car door slowly rolled open. The Wells Fargo guard stood in the opening with his hands above his head. The two robbers positioned the dynamite at the safe and ignited it. It blew the roof off the express car, reported the Arizona Sentinel, and cracked the massive safe into a hundred pieces. They scored a fortune, with estimates as high as $30,000, an amount equivalent in today's currency to nearly $1 million. Newspapers would note that the two bandits were very polite, apologising for taking jewellery and watches from the passengers. Then they rode off, marking an incredible success. 
Whilst the bayonets had galloped away, the train pulled into Kochi Station. A young man, just arrived from the east, had been hiding under his seat in a passenger car. In a reminder that the Old West could convince anyone they might be a hero in waiting, when the train stopped, the young man crawled out from under the seat, raced outside, and excitedly fired several bullets into the air with his revolver. The brakeman took his gun away and led him back to his seat. Law enforcement hardly had more luck than that over-eager newcomer, as Cochise County Deputy Sheriff Bert Alvord and Billy Stiles assisted County Sheriff Scott Wyatt in the attempt to find the bandits. At first, newspaper reports reflected optimistic attitudes among the deputies about their prospects for making an arrest in the shocking dynamite-powered train robbery. Then the reporters noticed that as the posses were going farther out each day, with nothing to show for it, the morale of the lawmen faltered. The deputies kept up the searches for weeks until the sheriff concluded it was a lost cause, told them to get back to their usual routines. By some accounts, Bert as a teenager had witnessed the gun battle in Tombstone between Wyatt Earp, Doc Holliday and their adversaries at the OK Corral. If Bert and Billy had hoped to achieve the kind of fame and legends surrounding such law enforcement heroes of Arizona as the Earps, they had failed miserably so far. As Billy and Bert continued to lead their search posses, reinforcements were dispersed to help track down the train robbers. A new posse was organised by Sheriff White, who had returned from his trip to Tucson. He was a tall, handsome man in his early 40s with curly brown hair and a walrus-style moustache. His posse was larger and composed of men who were generally more responsible and professional than those in the deputies' search teams. White's posse consisted of a blacksmith, a farrier, two bankers, several ranchers, and the Wilcox town doctor, along with several clerks and mill workers. After re-interviewing witnesses in Fairbank, the newly arrived investigators headed for the trail along the San Pedro River. Once there, they were able to follow the trail of the train robbers. A few miles down the path, they found the blood trail. The blood spatters led off on a side track, and after a mile, they heard soft, agonised groaning. Three-fingered Jack was lying on his side, legs curled up, holding his belly. A cactus he had managed to light on fire for warmth was still burning, an eerie addition to the scene. He had passed out, only waking up when his clothes caught on fire from the cactus, burning part of his foot. The members of the posse gave him water and got him on a horse. Jack passed out. The men in the sheriff's posse were elated. Multiple posses often competed with each other when searching for evidence and suspects after a major crime. Sheriff White's group had proven their worth by capturing one of the gang of robbers. Sheriff White and his posse brought three-fingered Jack back to Tombstone, tied to the horse. For a day or so, he was in and out of consciousness. He was attended to by Dr. George Goodfellow, the town doctor of Tombstone. Goodfellow had come to Tombstone as a young physician and ended up with unparalleled experience with gunshot wounds. He wrote numerous articles about the cases he had treated and the innovative methods he used to repair the damage. Within a few years, he became famous throughout the country, known as the Gunshot Doctor. Goodfellow operated on the train's fallen hero, Jeff Milton, repairing the shattered elbow to save his arm and probably his life. More pressing, Goodfellow treated the critically injured train thief, trying to save one of the men currently being demonised by the press nationwide. Bert Alvord had just returned to Wilcox. His posse rode much of the night, only to come back empty-handed. Several of the men grumbled that nobody could find anything on a moonless night in the Dragoon Mountains. Another agreed, saying that they were lucky they had not lost any horses to broken legs. Bert ignored the complaints and walked into the sheriff's office to write up his report. 
Some observers thought that Burt was unable to seize opportunities, especially when contrasted with White's successful capture of Three-Finger Jack. Maybe Burt was a man who would never live up to his potential, and maybe his friend Billy Stiles would be mired in the same perpetual disappointment. After an hour's struggle drafting the demoralising report at the office, Burr felt he had put enough words on the paper and went to his house in Pierce. His wife, Lola, 22, was out in her beloved gardens. She raised chickens and kept a vegetable and flower garden. No matter how much of her energy went into their home life, something was usually missing. But, given his series of roles in law enforcement, he had rarely been home. Even though his devotion to Lola was evident to observers, now Bert sat down next to her on a stool and told her about his night. She listened intently, then told him to get some sleep. Bert slept a good part of the day. That evening he went back to Schwertner's saloon to get the latest news over a drink. William Downing, one of the members of the search posse Bert put together, was leaning against the bar nursing a beer. Of medium height and lanky, he sported a handlebar moustache. He was 40 years old and arguably the most unpopular man in town. Downing was always in a bad mood, and he tended to spread his bitterness around, but he liked and admired Bert. Downing relayed that Sheriff White had found three-fingered Jack in bad condition. Jack hadn't talked to anybody since he was still unconscious. It seemed like a casual conversation sharing the latest news and gossip, but anyone watching closely might have been something else in the disagreeable Downing's face, a suspicious glint that suggested dark secrets. Morning came, and it was time for Bert to hand in his report on the case, however much this would seal his fate as a mediocre lawman. When he walked into the sheriff's office, he found himself looking down the barrels of several guns. Three Wells Fargo's detectives were waiting for him. They relieved him of his gun and his badge. The bombshell allegation landed on the community with the power of a detonation. Bert and Billy had not merely been incompetent investigators of the robbery, they had been its masterminds. Billy and Bert had not been seeking law enforcement immortality at all. They had used badges as a brilliant cover. Maybe there had been a time where they generally sought civic-minded accomplishments. They both had solid reputations as law enforcement officers. Billy was never as aggressive as Bert, who sometimes used his position of authority to settle personal scores. Probably the greed had been lurking there all along. And when hopes for glory fell apart, dreams of easy riches multiplied. One night they found themselves leaning on a bar, talking about what they wanted for themselves and their families. All of it required money that they didn't have and that they would never acquire as deputy sheriffs. His dual life came to a crescendo with this sensational dynamite-scorched Cochise train robbery, which had been seen as the first mark of Bert and Billy's limitations as law officers. The reality was entirely different. On September 11th, 1899, they were two of the four men playing a card game in the back room of a Wilcox saloon. They made a lot of noise and frequently ordered drinks. Billy Stiles and a conspirator slipped out a window and rode for Cochise, about 10 miles away. Meanwhile, Bert Alvord and fellow deputy William Downing, the town curmudgeon, continued to laugh loudly enough to be heard outside the back room. When the train came in from the east, the long uphill grade was slowed down. When the thieves signalled the engineer to bring the train to a halt, Billy hopped aboard with his gun drawn. The two masked bandits then forced the Wells Fargo messenger to open the express car, blew the safe with dynamite, collected some jewellery and watches from the passengers and rode like hell back to Wilcox. They climbed back in that window of the saloon before the telegraph officer came running in with the news of the train robbery. 
they were being called to catch the robbers. Bert and Billy were hardly the first law enforcement officers to dabble in crime. Many of our legendary lawmen of the West had long arrest records. Even Wyatt Earp and his brothers, James and Morgan, had been arrested numerous times. Wyatt was arrested for murder once before being acquitted. Billy the Kid was deputised for a few weeks, pursuing murderers, before being deemed an outlaw himself. There was no clear distinction between the law and the outlaw in the Old West. There were good men and women on both sides. Darkness overlapped the light, and people were sometimes forced into paths they may not have wanted. Billy and Bert, however, concocted a unique and clever scheme that allowed them to perpetrate a crime and then be the ones to investigate it. In the wake of their triumph, the gang of four were elated. Their first crime had gone off without a hitch. They made thousands of dollars. Greed was never sated. It growed and soon ruled their hearts. They thought it would be just a first in a long string of scores. It seemed sensible in planning the next heist to try to create more of a buffer between them and a robbery. This time, on February 15th, 1900, Bert and Billy sent five men they did not know well to rob a train. The inner circle who knew the truth suddenly grew from four to nine. They planned the robbery not a few miles outside the station, but right in the train station itself with dozens of people around. After making sure expert gunfighter Jeff Milton was not scheduled to be on duty. But their hired hands were not wise enough to abort the plan when they spotted Milton. The plan fell apart in and around the train and started a chain reaction that led to the seriously wounded three-finger Jack improbably gaining consciousness while under the care of doctors. Dr. Goodfellow put Jack in the old hotel he used as a hospital and did his best to make the man comfortable. Jack complained he was deserted by his companions and left to die. Jack felt betrayed, but he refused to name his co-conspirators for two days. Then Jack realised he was not going to recover. I guess it's all up this time, he said in a weak voice when a reporter visited him. I was treated pretty roughly, he said of his gang. He made a full confession to Sheriff White. The Tombstone Epitaph reported that the confession had broken the case wide open. The posses were on a hot trail. Dominoes quickly fell. The Owens brothers were found at their cabin near Pierce. Bob Brown made it all the way back to Texas before he was caught and sent back. Bravo Juan Yoas reached Mexico, where the authorities, notified by telegraph to look for him, found him in Cananea and turned him over to Sheriff White. But the shocking revelation by Three Finger Jack had not been the names of the career criminals at Fairbank, but rather that Jack and the other four were hired guns. Jack had explained how the plan counted on Wells Fargo guard Jeff Milton not being on that train. Jack had also been able to name the mastermind of the robbery, the very same man who had seemed to be feverishly investigating it, the loudest and angriest leader of the posses, Bert Alvord. Sheriff White shared the intelligence with other investigators, which resulted in warrants. After the Wells Fargo detectives quietly arrested the disgraced deputy, he was taken to a cell in the Tombstone Jail along with his friend and member of his posse, William Downing, the grumpy rancher accused in the same conspiracy. Meanwhile, Billy Stiles had missed the dramatic arrests of his co-conspirators. He had been out riding all night with his posse. By early morning, he had six exhausted men who wanted nothing more than to go home. On their way back, they had run into a man on the Charleston Road who told them about how the sheriff had found Three-Finger Jack and brought him into Tombstone. Billy sent his men off to find their beds and rode on alone. He spent most of that day thinking and resting. Jack was alive and was going to talk, 
maybe already had. That meant they were all headed for prison. The next morning, he rode into Tombstone to the sheriff's office, dismounted and tied up his horse. A deputy came out with his gun drawn. Billy put his hands up. When Billy Starr's faced Sheriff White, he admitted everything and agreed to testify to the authorities against all of his co-conspirators if he was spared jail. The opportunity was too good to pass up for law enforcement. Billy's information could ensure Burt and the others involved would be locked away for a long time. There was an added benefit to the arrangement too, of making Billy take responsibility and, in however minor a way, make amends for his descent into greed and crime. In the crowded Tombstone jail, new prisoner Burt Alvord did not have to look far to see the disappointment so many people felt in him. The jailer, or warden, was a man named George Braven, age 42, a friendly family man and former constable. Years before, Burt had worked for Braven as a deputy constable in Pierce, Arizona. Burt and George had worked together as a team for those several months, effectively bringing law and order to that boom town. Now Braven and his former deputy behind bars. Burt's situation was far worse than that of Bravo Juan, one of their hired guns for the Fairbank robbery, who sat in the same jail. To have been a criminal who committed crimes was expected, but Burt's imprisonment was a stunning fall from grace, a stain on their whole fraternity of law enforcement officers who had sworn to counter lawlessness among cowboys. Burt was an embarrassment to everyone he had worked with and to Cochise County. Burt's shame had room to grow. On April 8th, 1900, Bailey Stars, who had turned state's evidence, stepped into the jail to visit. Some reports indicated that Billy actually had earned his way back into the trust of authority so completely that he had been engaged to help guard the prisoners, his former co-conspirators. The jail at Tombstone was originally a 20 by 20 wooden structure on 6th Street, with a small office attached. The Cochise County Courthouse was built in 1882, and Tombstone was the county seat. The jail was moved into the rear portion of the courthouse a few years later. Bert and Billy, friends and former partners, faced each other in a poignant tableau. Together they had encapsulated the often fluctuating roles of the Old West Cowboy. Their seamless movements over the last year between law and crime and back again had been singular. In masterminding arguably the last train robbery, they unwittingly helped mark the end of that era shedding light on society's need to take the distinctions far more seriously. Now, separated by iron bars, they could be said to represent two very compromised versions of the cowboy. Bert was the disgraced cowboy who ultimately failed both as lawkeeper and criminal mastermind. Billy was a rehabilitated citizen, tainted by misdeeds. In Billy having avoided Bert's dismal fate of turning in his badge for prison stripes, the rule of law seemed to have won the day convincingly. With a new century of 1900, a new era of peace seemed to be ushered in. The very trains that they had disrupted in their robbery plots had also contributed to a sea change. With the continued expansion and sophistication of the railroad, civilization crept through the West. But at the same time, it was hard to shake the appeal of the wildness in the Wild West, to surrender the myth of a freedom that skirted all rules and codes. After locking eyes with Bert, Billy reached under his jacket and pulled out a gun. He turned around to face George Braven, demanding he open the cells. When the shot Braven refused, Billy shot the jailer in the foot, shooting off two toes. Securing the keys, Billy released Bert and the rest of the prisoners, 25 in all. Prisoners stepped out of the cells and milled around, unsure what to do. Braven, despite his bloody injury, pleaded with the prisoners not to forfeit their chances in courts and for their futures by walking out the door. 
One by one, most of them returned to their cells, even downing one of Bert's men who'd been part of the Cochise and Fairbank robberies decided to remain in jail. In fact, every prisoner returned to the cell, except Bert and Bravo Juan. Bert and Billy had thrown down the gauntlet. They could guess the familiar style that would certainly play out once again, one with warrants and posses and rewards. With Bravo Juan in tow, Bert and Billy prepared to escape and face possible immediate opposition in the streets of Tombstone, where everyone was armed and furious with them. If the rest of the prisoners in that jail had accepted the end of lawlessness, the escapees were bucking the system, betting that the Old West as they experienced it was still alive and well, a place where transgressions could be wiped clean, a realm in which anyone could be reinvented. They were betting they could disappear back into it, at least for the time being. They did just that. Bravo Juan's fate remains uncertain. He was known to be in Sonora for a few years. A brief note in the Tombstone News in 1908 said that he died, quote, down on the Amazon River, unquote. Nine days after his explosive confession, Three Finger Jack had died from his injuries, become the last man buried in the Boot Hill graveyard in Tombstone, yet another marker of a vanishing world. Sheriff Scott White served three terms as Sheriff of Cochise County. He was a legislator, a county supervisor, a deputy United States Marshal, and he was credited with being one of the finest lawmen in the territory. He also served as warden of a state prison and was an instigator for prison reform. When he died in 1936, he lay in state in the capital rotunda in Phoenix, and flags were lowered to half-mast all across the state. Billy and Bert's lives seemed to play out in a repeating loop. They would continue to alternate between criminal and legitimate enterprises, sometimes together, sometimes apart. Records about their families remain inconclusive. Though Lola divorced Billy in September of 1900, seven months after their last train robbery. She disappeared into a life far away from the violence and killing that had surrounded Bert Alvord. Billy would eventually happily settle into a role as a lawman under an alias in Nevada, his wife Maria remaining with him. This later chapter in his life, when he apparently never deviated from his oath to the law, ended with Billy shot and killed while serving a warrant. The ultimate fate waiting Bert would serve him perhaps the coolest cut, anonymity and normalcy. He would work in construction for a couple of years in Panama and Brazil before dying of yellow fever, leaving behind a net worth of $800, approximately $23,000 in today's values. Fairbank, Arizona was gradually abandoned when its railroad stop became unnecessary, turning it into a ghost town. A vestige of Burt and Billy's Old West may well remain today, as tales persist that some of the spoils of their first train robbery remains hidden somewhere in Cochise County. A week after he witnessed a jailbreak in Tombstone, George Braven was back at work in the jail, his foot in a cast, propped up on the desk. A Mexican man entered and returned the keys to the cells to Braven, along with the note with just one line. Tell the boys they were all well and eating regular. So to recap, that was The Last Train Robbery, written by Rima Sayers, for Truly Adventurous Fire Medium. Hope you've enjoyed listening. Until the next time, until the next long read, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.